I do a lot of stuff around value-driven well-being because that's how it embeds. They actually will build strategies that can be measured, can be evolved. Welcome to the Emotional Coach Podcast with me, Andreas Plimdori. And this week, my guest is Lee Chambers. Lee is a workplace well-being consultant, life coach, and speaker, and is the founder of Essentialized, based in the UK. Please subscribe, share, and review. It's the only way podcasts like this have a chance to survive. For more information, please visit andreasplendori.com. The theme tune is Paralyzed by Nevada. I think the aim is the same. We all want to achieve the same thing. And so far, everybody I spoke to has uh, the same idea about yeah. why they got into coaching. But we all approach it from a different uh, angle and we all have a different story to bring to it. So that's effectively what I'm doing this emotional coach podcast and also give everybody a voice. And I know you've been on a, on a lot of different things, but uh, it's just, I think it's important to be out there and have different angles on the story. And so it's pretty much, I have a couple of questions and the rest is really up to you to, to tell me whatever you like to tell me. So that's, oh. that's my little story. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So look, uh, we can start it then because um, I'm sure you've got stuff to do after this and we'll try to keep it as short as needs to be, but I'm, I'm free to, to talk to you for at least an hour anyway. So, that's so great. we go with that. So I'm here with Lee Chambers of Essentialized Functional Life Coaching. And um, thanks, Amina, for joining me, Lee. And uh, I want to start from one thing you said um, on one of the, um, the, the, like I listened to a couple of podcasts you did and I read a couple of things about it. But I guess one thing I, kind of, I was interested in is the, uh, you had one thing about Black Lives Matter, right? So that really kind of stuck with me because you had, re- you had a really interesting angle on well, you were talking about how it became such a big thing very quickly and then kind of fizzled out very quickly. Tell me a bit about that because I'm, I'm totally with you on that, but I want to hear from your side. Yeah, so I think it's like so many things in the modern world that we live in where there's an awareness event or a significant incident that generates a considerable ripple quite often now across the globe because of how interconnected things are. And what that ultimately does so often is it gets people's attention. And with that a bit of attention suddenly raises a little bit of awareness about, oh, so this is what, you know, some people are currently living through. And it's always been that way. When there's a major economic disaster or when there's an environmental disaster, we suddenly see it. And suddenly that part of our mind almost thinks like, imagine if we lived there. Imagine if in the middle, we lived in the middle of that conflict. Imagine if we were the ones suffering from the famine of that harvest. And it's always been like that. But now in the modern world, uh, there is, as you say, the echo chamber of social media. We suddenly have these very, very big spikes of awareness to events. And obviously the more brutal or the more you know, significant they appear, all of a sudden it generates an awareness beyond the people affected out towards people who generally wouldn't consider this on a day-to-day basis. So in terms of the events around 
George Floyd and the direct impact that that's currently had. We're obviously in the middle of COVID and that puts a different perspective on it because everyone is suddenly that bit anxious about a virus that transmits, that is virulent, that is spread around the globe and taken many people's lives. And no matter how you know, resilient we are, there is that underlying feeling that, you know, we could be in danger. There is a little bit of a threat out there. And all of a sudden, this impactful incident where someone suffers brutality, which isn't always visualized for people who were not there. Suddenly, a lot of people have watched, millions of people have watched this incident. And what it does is psychologically, we're not designed to not feel like we're there. Obviously, we, are, we weren't psychologically and physiologically wired to be watching the television. You know, we've only had that in the past 70 years. What it actually does is we struggle to catalyze the fact that that's not actually us and we're not actually there. That can feel like a threat that's right next to you. And when they actually looked at the Boston bombings, they realized that people who'd watched more than six hours of Boston bombing footage, you know, the after stuff, all the news reports, they reported high levels of PTSD than people who were actually there, which just shows just how much you consume affects how your mind alchemizes things. So the realization of that is what it did is suddenly hundreds and hundreds of people across my own network started to reach out and say, you know, Lee, how do you feel about this? And I said, you know what? This incident has happened. The reality is things like this are happening across the world every day. This has been, you know, televised. This has been recorded. This has now been put on the internet and been shared around the world, been seen by millions and millions of people. And in its own way, incites a high to level of awareness for a lot of people. And it starts to actually make them question on a wider perspective, why, when we're all supposed to be coming together as a human race to try and protect ourselves from the bigger threat of a virus, why we're still brutalizing each other in ways which are, you know, inhumane, let's be honest, at the end of the day. And for me, a big part of that is suddenly there was a massive surge in activity on these things. There was protests, there was social media black squares, there was lots of people suddenly asking questions about how can we try to tackle this. The reality is that initial surge, it always dies off. And I almost equate it to, as human beings, we have a lot of issues that we hide under rugs and all of a sudden something happens and that issue flies from under the rug and almost how this particular incident felt is that racism came out from under the rug for a lot of people who'd suffered in the past in that aspect it brings about previous traumas when you see things like that and you're subjected to and ultimately see someone who looks quite like you being treated in that way and what that almost did is it came out from under the rug and all of a sudden there was thousands of people stood by you saying, okay, 
let's try and tackle this beast that's come out from under the rug. And you went off to get them weapons so they could go into battle and charge into battle with you. And by the time you got enough weapons for all the people that had come to help, you got back there to find there was only a few people still, you know, talking about going forward. The rest had gone off to another rug and another issue. And that is unfortunately how transient we can be and why I have a real problem with awareness weeks. Because, yeah, these are things that need awareness, but they don't just last a week. People live with these challenges every day and that, that doesn't matter if it's race if it's gender if it's if it's how you identify from your sexuality your age the culture you come from everyone's got these challenges and they don't just last a week <laughs> they don't just last for this event and it's like getting people to understand that actually this is something that is an underlying current that people face challenges are there we don't want a week to celebrate the fact that the challenges are there we want small changes to start to happen and yeah there's no doubt about it Andrea these conversations not easy but in that scenario what happens is a lot of people come to you and say you've experienced this educate us help us understand and the truth is I might be a psychologist I might not have qualifications in nutrition. I might be a certified coach. But you know what? I am not the fountain of knowledge. I'm not a black historian. I'm not a black interpreter. I am not, <laughs> I am not the beacon for how black people feel. I've got lots of blind spots of my own. And throughout my own journey, I have been brought up in a majority white neighborhood gone to majority white education and work in a majority white industry and ultimately that means that sometimes I'm not actually the best person to speak to about this kind of thing in fact I'm not the best thing for people to do is to go out and educate themselves and start to build their own self-awareness and then they'll be able to see things a little bit more clearly and realize that out there there's lots of amazing resources from people who work on this day in, day out, from people who are really, really passionate about it. And I have my own why. And a big part of my why is showing other people of colour, you know, of, of males inside the well-being industry that you can do it as well. If I can, then you can break through that conformity. You can break through those barriers and just be you and bring your gifts, your experience, your qualifications, your industrial knowledge, bring it all together. And like you said, just before we started this call, the beauty of coaching is you bring your own experience, your own questioning style, your own delivery, and your, your own style and bring it all together and help people. Yeah, that, that's 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 fantastic. And the reason I've asked that question, first of all, I want to I, I, what you had spoken to Paul about was um, Paul Zelizer. You had given a similar answer, but this is just to to inform the the audience that exactly that you're a young man, but you've got a lot under your belt already, already in terms of experience, life experience, and work experience, which. I guess it's, it doesn't really, you don't quantify in, in, in days and in, in years. It's very much the awareness and how much you, you, you take from that experience. And 
tell me a little bit about before you got into coaching, you had this, um, this company called Phenom Games. What was that all about? Yeah, so it all started really when I, I went to university. I was the first one in my family to go. Um, and that was really setting a precedent. And I, I had some challenges at university with my mental health as I tried to transition from an adolescent to an adult. And a lot of that stemmed from a lack of emotional intelligence and a lack of self-awareness. And that really kind of ultimately started me because I was taken home by my parents halfway through university because I was struggling so much and I started to isolate myself and being and taken out of that scenario and having time to reflect really helped me appreciate the value of of reflection, helped me appreciate that self-awareness would help me express myself going forward and that when you face challenges in life, avoidance was going to make you struggle but approaching them and seeing them as challenges rather than threats would help you step into them and grow as a person so i graduated with international business psychology degree in 2007 and i'd had that time to think about purposefully what my strengths were and what i enjoyed and the two things that i enjoyed were helping people and working with algorithms statistics and figures so I wanted to become a financial advisor, could help people with the financial well-being and help them to understand the elements of compound interest, help them understand how to invest and get the figures and the, the, the joy of doing that as well. Um, so I managed to get onto an esteemed graduate scheme here in the UK at a national bank. Obviously, this was in the autumn of 2007. Not a good time to go into finance. <laughs> so six months later, I lost my training budget. And then a few weeks later, I lost my job. So I then looked, had to move home again, go back to the drawing board and reduce my overheads and think, what can I do? Look out, no other finance jobs. That pathway is currently not available. Um, So I thought, you know what? I'd drawn up a business plan about a year before for a video game wholesaling business. Took it to an advisor and he'd said, you know what, Lee, this is a great plan. You know, it's, it's executable. The figures are realistic. Nothing's inflated. It looks like it's achievable, but you're going to struggle executing it yourself because you're young. Your your edges are rough. You, you know, you come across with a bit of attitude and you're a bit, just a bit of a disruptive character. And, you know, you're going into an industry that's traditional. They're not going to, they're not going to really feel like they're on your frequency when you walk into that room and go and pitch you're going to probably struggle because it's, uh, it's got quite high barriers to entry. And I was like, I took that at the time and thought, you know what, this guy, this is coming from, you know, a place of advice, a place of, you know, considering that, yeah, there, there are going to be obstacles. But what I did is made me not see the opportunities until I was forced to. When I went home, I was like, I need to do something. And I got myself a job in local government. And then, I decided I'm going to use this to self-fund this business, which then took off, took over my parents' house. It went up to six figures. I started started doubling revenue. I had to buy my own house, so I had enough space. (laughs) Uh, And then it just really kind of took off in in a lot of different ways. And all of a sudden, I had what was a a significance-sized business with just me and a whole bunch of automations. And it really led to me expanding in a lot of different ways and starting to live quite a comfortable life, which still in its own way led me to work alongside the business. 
So I had that continual learning and I ended up working with people who had lost their job, helping them really define, did they want to go back into the same job or a different industry? Then helping them build the confidence and helping them communicate while interview. And that was that first bit of like coaching journey that I experienced. And that really resonated with me inside. And then what actually happened is I became unwell, lost the ability to walk. And that really changed my worldview, changed my mindset, but really locked me into the fact that I need to help people. But first I need to help myself. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that. But before, I just want to step back one minute. Because you say you didn't have the emotional intelligence at the time. And, you know, you, you became unwell in, in college and university. But, but all that, that awareness, that really understanding about you, I mean... I think we need to give your parents some credit there. It must come from somewhere. Well, how about your parents? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, because they, 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 had the, they took you out of college. They brought you back in in the nest and looked after you. But is, where, where is that? Is it, both parents have that awareness? Tell me a bit about that. Because that's, um, uh, oh, it's interesting. I wouldn't say my parents were the most self-aware people. But they are naturally nurturing people. So they if anything, that they've both worked very hard and they've both gone down the wrong career paths. And I think a big part of it is I, I've never really had particularly deep conversations with my parents. And I think that was probably part of the issue at the time because I kind of looked back on my past and tried to pull that from my own experience of childhood. Didn't really find that, looked out to society and you know, young lads who look like me, they want to be footballers. They want to be rappers or film stars. And I'm so, a, some, a strange kind of mix between entrepreneur, scientist and philosopher. And they didn't really see that part, see, see that example. So really I felt it was, like it was on me. And I felt like I didn't have the tools from my early years to be able to dig deeper and understand that. But actually looking back, I understand that. I was born at quite an interesting time. So I was born in 1985. And what I actually had is I was the last little sliver of people to have an analog childhood. <laughs> so my childhood was, it was before the internet, before digital came and changed the world. And what that really did for me is it helped me to navigate that strange barrier. So I was there as a, you know, when the internet became prevalent at like 13, 14, 15, and suddenly we had the very first mobile phones. Uh, but I was able to utilize that. And I was helping people who were older than me to use these systems. And for me, what I kind of did is it really transported because the world moved very quickly. Like when I was at university, like things like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, they didn't exist. And, but by the time I finished, they did. And the world started moving incredibly quickly. And I realized that I had to start to develop as well. Because as a child, you just, you're just very curious. You're disruptive. You're very, very clinical with what you do. And you're willing to ask lots of questions. And for some reason, that gets knocked out of us a little bit. But I started to bring that back. I started to be a child again. So I went home and suddenly got curious about why this had happened. Looking back on the challenges that I had, starting to realize that I hadn't failed, just 
the situations hadn't gone the way I intended them to and I'd attached a certain value to that and then become disappointed and disillusioned. I actually stepped back and realized that if I dissected the events and detach that emotion, I'd actually be able to work out why things had happened in a logical way. And being a quite a logical and rational person, that felt quite reassuring. And then I, I just started to really understand that I needed to be proactive. Look at this world spinning so quickly around me. I've got to be traveling and be quite dynamic and agile myself. Otherwise, I'll not be able to chisel my character as quickly as the world is spinning. I think that's the big thing that really came from that experience in that I stopped because I felt like I didn't have the emotional intelligence. And then I realized that actually it's a skill. You can cultivate it and learn it, but you need to be proactive about doing that because the world is more and more designed towards comfort, funneling you to things you already believe, funneling you to want to become a master rather than a beginner. And I kind of stepped back and realized, look, emotional intelligence and self-awareness um, is like a, is like a, I'm like on level one on a video game. I'm literally that character that if I, you, see, you see the boss at the very end of the game and they're completely unbeatable. <laughs> you're a level one character. You're little. You've not even you know, leveled up yet. And it's like, that's how I felt. And I said, but my emotional intelligence, my self-awareness, I'm going to go through those levels in life and level it up. I'm going to grow as a person. I'm going to develop it because I know that actually, you know, as this technological world spins, everyone's going to be chasing technological skills. What if I develop my emotional skills? That might be a slightly different way to come at it. And even though I worked in tech with a video game business, I was developing these emotional skills understanding how bodies work because i was sure that at some point the two would come together and biotechnology would come and then we'd be looking at can we understand the body can we understand the technology can we bring them together and that's kind of really why i then proceeded the, on the path of yeah with my video game business but that paid for me to do qualifications in conditioning qualifications in nutrition qualifications in sleep and qualifications in psychology Fascinating. And I guess that was a, that, that's what prepared you for that um, uh, cataclysm in 2014, where you just, a uh, young man starts in the family and everything's looking good. And next thing, you just can't move pretty much. Um, autoimmune, isn't it not immune arthritis? Am I correct? Yeah. So it's um, it basically that's... my immune system attacking the connective tissue of my joints and yeah. locking them in place and causing a whole host of damage while it did it <laughs> wow. and that kind of put you to bed literally for for weeks and months on end um, and i mean the, the coming out of that and i again i heard you talking about it and uh, but the strength that it takes the the emotional strength apart from the physical strength which is you know um you can break a leg and have to rework physiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. But you're sitting the line there and you have a kid that is only a few months old and looking at you. And I mean, how much did you uh, go back to the well, that well of learning that you have nurtured? How much was that important for you? 
Yeah, it was really important because what I went through with my mental health and then what I went through with the redundancy was almost like training for this because this was bigger. This was an immediate threat to my health and a significant impact on my future. And yet I knew I needed to, you know, go through the shock and all the negative emotions that came initially as I just tried to process what had happened. But I knew that I'd taken ownership over building myself previously. Then I'd taken ownership over my career and over my training. And this was just a call. It happened to me, really, to step into, step up and take ownership of my health. And I just kind of saw it as yet another segment of my life where I was being told that you just, you just weren't focusing on it as much as you needed to. And this is the time to go and level up your health. And yeah, we're going to actually take away something you cherish. But the thing is, you don't cherish walking. It's just something that you do. Not being grateful for it. But all of a sudden, I was pretty grateful when I lost it. And that kind of eye-opening effect we do live in this world where we're so tunnel visioned. You know, we always see, we always see the gap. We never see the gain. And for so many people, it does take something significant for you to stop. And the power of losing the ability to walk over that period is you get so much time to reflect when you can't walk around. <laughs> and it, what, it, yeah, it just anchored me in. But really what was, what was the special thing for me was, my daughter was born not long after I came out of hospital. She couldn't walk either, but she was going to learn and she wouldn't have any of society's limits, any of society's boundaries, any of society's false expectations. She was just going to start getting up one day, sit up, then start crawling, then start walking. And I said to myself, I need to do the same. I need to get in that shower and try to wash off all this society's muck that stuck to me over all these years. And just try to say, look, she's going to start walking. I'm going to start walking. In fact, by the time she's walking, I'm going to be walking with her. And really that understanding of that psychological element of we really have the fuel to be consistent when we have a reason why. When we have a really strong reason why. And when that why is actually for somebody else. Because we'll always do more for somebody else than we'll do for ourselves. And that kept me accountable seeing her every morning, holding her in my arms, knowing that I had to get up and do my exercises, do my physio, do my stretches. I had to do them. I was in pain a lot of the time. I was stiff. I didn't feel like doing them, but I decided this isn't about how you feel. It's about who you want to become. And by doing the actions based on who you want to become, you'll actually feel good because you'll be being congruent with yourself and you'll be looking at that you know, that chance for you to be back on your feet and to not accept your fate, but to actually enjoy your fate and say, you know what? I've been struck down a bit, but I can get back up. I can probably bounce higher and I'm just going to enjoy what is. And at the moment, that's recovery. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to enjoy it as much as I can because acceptance is so powerful because that then allows you to commit to make a change. Fantastic. And I must say, I was looking through your LinkedIn story and there's a wonderful picture of you and your two kids, obviously everybody doing well and, and you know, on your week off last week. So it's great to see that that's recovery. It's turned into flourish. Um, but so it's, it's amazing because, you know, as I was saying to you before the, the microphone was turned on that, that 
we all find in our path to to coaching through different things i, I too found it through broadcasting uh, uh, your story you know your 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 switch was a little bit heavier than mine you know you were switched on to to to, to coaching the moment you were lying there in bed and, and and pondering about your future but so now we have i mean we we can obviously talk about for hours about all the different things that that inform your coaching and practice but this is giving a good sense to people of what you're about and and who you are and now obviously as with essentialize you're bringing it into companies as a well-being coaching uh, practice what what are the the challenges you you're facing with companies at the moment because you know, I spoke to Paul Zelizer, I spoke to another lady called Antoinette Brax, and, and they're talking about a lot of the social entrepreneur and companies moving towards a more purpose and people goals, which is fantastic. It's great to hear. But the figures show there's only we're only talking about 10% of that, of the companies out there doing that. So what do you see as a challenge when you're meeting your potential clients? What are the, 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 the stopping blocks? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a few different um, different challenges that we face. I mean, firstly, again, like Paul, I do a lot of stuff around value-driven well-being because that's how it embeds. They actually will build strategies that can be measured, can be evolved. And in the industry, there, there is a lot of compliance well-being. So we bring the well-being in to ensure that, you know, we, we do what we need to do from a compliance perspective. And that's great. But so often that is the really, you know, expansive awareness week and then very little strategy after that. And naturally during COVID, it's amplified some of the issues around that. There, there is going to be a mental health fallout from COVID, a significant one across the globe, because we have faced a really, really turbulent time and a lot of people have had significant challenges. Uh, but from a business perspective, some businesses have lost significant amounts of income. And speaking to them, you understand that ultimately for a certain level of employee well-being and an employee's financial well-being, they need to be getting paid. They need to be in employment initially to get those benefits if I'm working through companies as a channel. So for them companies, they quite often they've got the shield up. They are only spending on things that generate income on the bottom line, generate revenue and generate revenue right now. And that short termism is fine in times of crisis. Yeah. I can understand why you're seeing it as a threat. The, the companies that I'm working with are seeing it as a challenge, are seeing that, yeah, there is a difficult climate out there, but your people are going to fuel your recovery. The people who you invest in now in the times of the crisis will be like the seeds that you saw. You will benefit as, again, we're in very much in a, very much an economic autumn coming into a winter because when the government support is withdrawn from a lot of places there's going to be redundancies some companies are really going to struggle and that hit is going to come and yet we will come out of the other side back into a spring again and new companies will grow and flourish it's the companies who are starting to harvest now and look after their employees spend that time 
use strategy to ensure that their employees are being able to be appreciated, are still able to grow through challenge, and are in, in a culture where they feel like they belong, where they feel like they're included, and where they feel like they're actually cherished as people. It's not just a company to make money. It's a company to make a difference in the world. And you are the people chosen to make that difference with your shared values, with your missions and your goals. And when a company's purposeful and the people within it are purposeful, then you've got a base for well-being. I can then deliver more of my health behavior change, looking at how we can help people perform at a higher level. A lot of the stuff that I do, it needs that basis, that foundation where people are valued, where people have a voice, space to talk, space to give feedback and a culture where they can take ideas and occasionally fail, but they're allowed to innovate and be creative because the truth is, Andrea, the economic crash where I lost my job back in 2008, that spawned a large amount of companies who decided to do things differently. They're now significant companies who have disrupted those industries. If you take Uber and Airbnb, for example, might not have the best records in terms of the people that they serve and the policies and their strategies. But I'm hoping that today's social enterprises who are doing things differently in 10 years time, they're going to be the big companies because the more and more that I look at it, I want to start to look at the future's wellbeing challenges. Start to prevent those today because if you look at the 200 richest entities by wealth in the world, over 150 are companies, not nations. So as we look to make a difference and change the world that we live in for a positive, companies are going to be fueling that. And I want it to be the social enterprises, purpose-driven, value-led, conscious businesses that are looking at all stakeholders when they're making decisions not just shareholders, but society, their employees, the clients and the customers and the collaborators and partners they work with, all those stakeholders through all decisions. And all of a sudden, you'll have businesses which just look at such a wider angle, they'll be able to make significant change in the world. Fantastic. Tell me something about the... Um, you mentioned something about a return on investment on one of the interviews. Um, and I know it's hard to quantify, and, and you mentioned you know, the difference between a compliance well-being versus a value-driven well-being. But there are some stats out there. In, uh, you know, we all, I think we can all uh, agree that you know, the, the individual well-being is obviously paramount, and we all subscribe to that. But from a company point of view, the guy that signs the check, that he needs to say, okay, well, I will get essentializing to, to, to look after my, my company, but he's going to charge me this much. And what is my return? And that's unfortunate. That's not going to change overnight. That's going to be the conversation we're all going to face over and over. So what's, what's that return investment uh, that you found, the, 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 the figures? Yeah. So ultimately, when they've brought together a number of studies across this, last year, Deloitte looked into it and found out that, the general, generally speaking, the return on investment on a well-being program is £4.2 to every pound spent. So 4.2 to 1. When actually looking across those individual studies and studies that they didn't include, what you start to see is 
that's for a general well-being program no strategy no tailored elements for your industry's challenges for your employees pain points for your management's capabilities and actually when you look at it wider and you strategize this you measure it and evolve it the return on investment can be up to 32 to 1 which is massive but that does require a certain acceptance from companies for someone to come in and actually build a strategy for your company and then deliver in a bespoke way for your company that's personalized. And that's really important because your typical company has lots of different demographics, lots of different roles and lots of different challenges. The people who work in the warehouse will have different challenges than the people who work in the office. Some people will be working night shifts. Some people will be working early shifts. I deliver a sleep program that's very significantly different programs for those different challenges. And my programs are based on a framework and then I build it through modules depending on who I'm delivering to. Because there is no one size fits all well-being. Well-being is incredibly complex. But what is simple is that everyone has their own individual considerations of what well-being is. Everyone has their own challenges right now. And nobody wants to make massive sweeping changes to the life overnight. They want something that's easy, something that's actionable, and something that feels a little bit rewardable to gradually make lots of small changes together that compound over time. And that's what I deliver. I go in and I look and I see, what have you got now? Is it working? What return are we getting now? Is it something that we can look to evolve? Maybe you want some slightly different delivery. Some companies don't have anything. And we start right at the beginning and baseline and benchmark. What's your employee engagement, experience, happiness, well-being, fulfillment? What is it right now? And let's actually build from that. Where do you want it to be? Right, so let's look where you want it to be and let's build a strategy that's working back from where you want it to be. And let's see if we can get that planned, measured, and then it becomes sustainable. When you get a return on investment, let's be honest, you have a business case to keep funding this because so often well-being, it gets funded initially, but because there's no measurement, because it's fluffy, because it's not quantifiable, the business case fades and suddenly the spending drops. And that's what's happened to so many companies because they don't see the return. And in these challenging times, they stop spending. But if you see the return, if you understand the return, then you have a business case to continue investing and realize that well-being needs to be threaded through other business processes. And it is a priority a lot more than you think it is. Yeah, it's a bit like what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation. You know, we don't need an awareness week for, uh, for Black Lives Matter. We need you know, a constant, everyday little action to make the difference. Well, Lee, I could talk to you all day, but I, I won't because we both have things to do. But I do want to leave you with one question. What's your dream and hope for your two wonderful kids in years to come? What would you like to see happen? Yeah, so I would like to see both Miles and Annabelle grow into the potential adults they can be, but also be able to express themselves and really anchor into that and understand that they will be who they are. I will be proud of who they are. And I know that they will grow into resilient, curious, disruptive young people, just like I did 
and hopefully I can give them the freedom to fail and understand that it's not them who's failed and just help them to understand that navigating life it's full of challenges but things that happen they are a challenge to step into and everything is an opportunity to grow getting uncomfortable and stepping outside that comfort zone a little bit is where all the things that you want are even if society tells you they're not fantastic and you might have a footballer in your family who knows or or a rapper or whatever oh yeah or exactly they will be who they are and Annabelle is actually quite good at football. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Lee Chambers, thanks a million for your time. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you again soon. Yep, been a pleasure, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Kind of on the ground.